This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Good evening, and welcome to Rand. I'm Andy Hohen, Senior Vice President for Research and Analysis at the Rand Corporation. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for this Distinguished Speaker series. Simon Sinek is the author of two books, the global bestseller, Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action, and his newest bestseller, Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't. Simon is an adjunct staff member at RAND, where he advises on matters of military innovation and planning. He is also a close friend and colleague. And now let's listen in as Simon explains how leaders and companies that make the greatest impact in their organizations and in the world think, act, and communicate in the environments in which people operate at their natural best. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's... um. A little embarrassing and upsetting that I have a career. Um, I, I talk about things like trust and cooperation and like treating people like human beings and stuff that there should be no demand for. And, and yet there is a demand for this message. And that's um, sad to me. Um, and what is particularly sad to me is how um, very often when I get to travel around and speak about these things that people view them as new ideas um, or good ideas as if, as if they haven't existed for very long. Um, but this idea of treating people well and this concept of leadership, I'm starting to realize more and more as I've been doing this for a few years may be the root of many of the problems that we have today. You know, leadership is often treated as a a nice thing, or something to think about afterwards. Um, but again, the more I read the news and the more I get to sort of talk to people who are supposed to be leading, I, I think it's a bigger issue. Um, for example, we look at the dysfunction in the VA. Um, that, by the way, is a breakdown of leadership. That, that's all that is. Um, if there was functional leadership, you would have had the people inside the organization taking responsibility for the organization. Um, we look at the dysfunction in Congress. Um, that is nothing short of a complete lack of leadership. That, that's all it is. Um, I used to believe that Congress was the root of all of the ills today. Um, I now do not believe that. Um, I believe that Congress is a reflection of us. Um, we are the ones who aren't listening to each other. We are the ones that fight with each other. We are the ones that have picked a, a side and refused to talk to or vilify uh, the other one, it is us. And we have a Congress that simply represents us. And I think there's a little bit of um, self-reflection that needs to happen. Um, we look at some of the corporate excesses and the things that really upset us. Um, these are nothing short of failures of leadership once again. Um, we don't actually mind that um, good leaders get paid a lot of money. It, it actually doesn't bother us. What we mind is when leaders violate, violate the very definition of what it means to be a leader. Um, as a little aside, what is the definition of a leader? It's, it's a historical definition. It's not some highfalutin opinion. Um, we are social animals. The reason we are successful as a species is because we are social. Um, we're not the strongest. We're not the fastest. We weren't the only hominid species uh, upon this earth when we showed up 50,000 years ago, we were the one that survived and we were the one that thrived. And we did so because we worked together. Um, by ourselves, we're not very good. In groups, we are remarkable. And we are remarkable when we live and work with people we trust. There are simple and inherent benefits um, to being amongst people around whom we feel safe, um, around whom we trust. It means we can fall asleep at night and trust that someone else will watch for danger. If we don't trust the people with whom we live or with whom we work, we can't fall asleep at night. It's not a, it's not a good system. And so for about 
40,000 of the 50,000 years that we've been on this planet, we lived in populations that never got bigger than about 150 people. It's only the past 10,000 years with farming that our populations had the resources to, to explode. And so in these times, there was a very practical issue. That practical issue was um, food. And we were all pretty hungry at these resource-constrained times. And when somebody brought food back to the tribe, um, 150 of us, up to 150 of us, if you were lucky enough to be built like a football player, you could rush in and push everybody else out the way and get the food you wanted. And if you're the artist of the family, uh, you get an elbow in the face. This is not a very good system. Uh, because the odds that I will alert someone to danger who punched me in the face this afternoon uh, are not very high. Um, and so we evolved into hierarchical animals. We are constantly judging and assessing each other, who's alpha, who's beta. Um, it's a relative scale. It's not an absolute scale. If you've ever had the experience um, where you're nervous to meet someone, you're not the alpha. Uh, <laughs> we, we've all had the experience where we can sense that someone's nervous to meet us, you're the alpha, right? Um, and when we assess that someone is alpha to us, we voluntarily step back and allow our alphas to eat first. So alphas in a, in a group uh, are given first choice of meat and first choice of mate. And though we may not get the best cut of meat, um, we get to eat eventually, and we didn't get an elbow in the face. This is a good system, right? And to this current day, we're very comfortable with the system. We are very comfortable with our alphas being given preferential treatment. Um, there's not a single person in this room that has any problem with someone more senior than you in your organization having a higher salary than you. It doesn't bother us at all, right? You may, you may think they're an idiot, um, <laughs> but it doesn't actually bother you that they make more money because they are more senior. It doesn't bother us that someone more senior in the organization has a better parking space or a bigger office. In fact, the funny thing is sometimes we actually come to expect it. Um, can you imagine if the president of the United States had to carry his own luggage? You know, we'd be incensed. You know, we can't find someone to find his luggage. I mean, to, uh, to carry his luggage. He's the president, for heaven's sakes. I will do it. It would be an honor. You know, and we actually find ourselves volunteering happily to, quite, to do quite menial labor for, for our alphas. In other words, we're proud. We're proud to work for those who we perceive as our leaders, as our alphas. And this is one of the reasons we all, you know, like to appear strong. And this is why men walk around like this in bars, because they want to be perceived as, <laughs> as the alpha, right? Because it's attractive, right? Um, and it comes with certain benefits. People call you sir and ma'am, and they hold doors open for you and, you know, bring you tea or coffee without you even asking. I mean, it's good to be the king. Um, but this is, this is the rub now. This is the rub. Uh, none of that stuff comes for free. None of that stuff comes for free. Um, you see, we as the group are not stupid. Um, though the leader may have authority over any one of us as individuals, they work for the group. And this is why dictators are afraid of the people. This is why dictators have fake elections to give the appearance of legitimacy from the people. This is why dictators keep the people divided. The more you keep the people divided at each other's throats, you're safe because we have power over the individuals, but we fear the people. Um, I'll give you a quick aside that made me realize this so starkly. Um, dictators um, keep the people away from them. I, I was walking down the street, I was walking down Pennsylvania Avenue with a Palestinian, and we walked past the White House, <clears throat> and we were standing at the fence, and he says, that's the White House. I went, yeah. He goes, the President of the United States lives there. I'm like, yeah, it's the White House, you know? He's like, no, right there. I'm like, hey, it's the White House, right? And what I realized, what he was saying to me is, there's no visible um, or overbearing security. We know it's secure, but there's no razor wire. There's no guys walking around with submachine guns. There's no signs that say shoot to kill. In other words, um, in a democracy, we trust our leaders and our leaders trust us. They actually allow us to come up to their homes. I mean, this is a big deal. In a dictatorship, um, you keep the people miles and miles away and you have huge you know, roadblocks and guys with machine guns and, and curfews and, and things like that. Dictators fear the people. This is the point. The people have the power.
The people always have the power. And that's why I say that all of the perks of leadership do not come for free. We as the group expect there's a social contract that when danger threatens the tribe, that it is that alpha, that it is that leader that will rush towards the danger to protect us. That's why we gave you the first choice of meat and mate, because you're naturally stronger or smarter. And so if you're better fed and you've got more self-confidence and you, know, you are naturally stronger, we want you to rush towards the danger. That's why we gave you first choice of mate, because you might die first. We want to keep your genes in the gene pool. Not stupid, right? And so for the leader that refuses to accept their responsibility, this is what we find abhorrent. And this is what we find viscerally offensive. This is why we find um, the exorbitant salaries or bonus structures of some of the bankers so offensive. It's not the numbers. It's that they have violated the very definition of what it means to be a leader. We know that they allowed their people to be sacrificed for them to keep their perks. Worse, we know that they sacrificed their people to keep those perks. And this is what we find so offensive. If I told you we're going to give a $150 million bonus to Nelson Mandela, anybody got a problem with that? Nope. How about $250 million bucks to, to Mother Teresa? Like, we're actually okay with that. We're okay with it because it's not the amount of money. It's not the numbers. It's not that we're fine with our alphas being given preferential treatment and perks. and sal- We're fine with it if, if they uphold the responsibility of leadership. And this is the very point of leadership. It has nothing to do with rank. It is a responsibility. I know many people who sit at the highest echelons of an organization, and though they have authority, they are not leaders. We do as they tell us because they have authority over us, but we would not follow them. And I know many people who sit at the lowest levels of organizations, who have no authority, and yet they have made the choice to look after the person to the left of them and look after the person to the right of them. And this is what it takes to be a leader. It is unbelievably hard work. It comes with tremendous amounts of sacrifice. It's not something you do at work and then you don't do it at home. You're either in or you're out. It's not for everyone. It is a difficult choice. As we make our way up the ranks of leadership and we choose to be leaders rather than simply authorities, if we choose to be leaders, it's not something that we just do and then go home and then we turn it off. It's, it's, it's not a decision. It's not an event. It's a daily practice. It's like parenting, that we take care of those in our charge and would choose to sacrifice the things that we value, the things that we want, the things that we need so that they, so that they may survive. I sat down with Lieutenant General George Flynn of the United States Marine Corps and asked him, What is it that makes the Marines so good at what they do? And he replied simply, officers eat last. Now, if you go to any chow hall on any Marine base anywhere in the world, at chow time, what you will see is they will line up in rank order. The most junior Marine eats first. The most senior Marine eats last. Always. No one tells them they have to. And it's not in any rule book. It's because of the way they view leadership. They don't view it as a rank. They view it as a responsibility. It's the responsibility to take care of those in your charge. So true story. There was a group of Marines that were deployed. And um, it was time to eat. And as is the custom, the officer ate last. Except on this particular day, they ran out of food. No food left for the officer. They went back out into the field. And one by one, all of his men brought him some of their food. And this is really the, the, the secret to great leadership. Officers never go hungry, ever. And this is the point. Leadership is about risk. It's the risk of trust. It's the risk to speak out. It's the risk to tell the truth. Um, a leader would never say, well, you, you prove to me why I should trust you. If you're in my team, you get my trust. This is what happens. This is what leaders do. And because they're willing to take that risk, because they're the ones willing to stick their neck out on the line to tell the truth, to do what's right, to protect the weak, sometimes it means costing their lives at the most extreme, but at least their perks or their interests at the minimum. 
we naturally, as human beings, reward that kind of risk, reward that kind of behavior with love and loyalty and the desire to offer our blood and sweat and tears to see that that leader's vision comes to life. In fact, it makes us proud to work hard to see that vision brought to life. What we have today, the epidemic that we have today, is a distinct lack of courage to take that risk. I see it in big business, I see it in small businesses, I see it in public companies, I see it in private companies, I see it in government, I see it in politics. What we have are people who are too damn afraid of losing their jobs, or too damn afraid of losing their positions, or too damn afraid of losing a little bit of money, and by the way, they have more than they need, right? So that others may benefit. And this is not a political point of view. This is a biological and anthropological point of view. I find it hilarious, absolutely laughable, that our members of Congress would indict uh, leaders of business for putting their profits before their people, and yet these same members of Congress put their elections, put their own successes before their own people. I had a meeting in Congress, and uh, there was a bunch of congressmen sitting around the table, and I started the meeting. I said, okay, why do you want me here? And they said, today or in general? <laughs> and I said, both. And they said, well, today we'd like you to talk to us about leadership and how we can be better leaders. I said, I can do that. Not a problem. And I said, what about in general? They said, we'd like your help with our agenda. I said, I said, okay. I said, how candid would you like me to be? <laughs> they said, very. I said, okay. The fact that you used the word agenda proves to me that you don't care about the people you represent, but you care about yourselves. If you talked about needing help with your vision, I'm in. If you talked about needing help with uh, how to lead, how to bring the country together, what to do, I'm in, I'm in. The mere fact that you said agenda is a selfish disposition. It means you care more about yourselves than you do about the people out there. Now, the good news is we're having the meeting. The good news is there are good people in our government who are working very hard to try and see it through this morass. But the problem is there is this morass. The amazing thing is it's not a, an old thing. It's a relatively recent thing. Um, you talk to any seasoned politician, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. They will tell you that it used to be more functional. It absolutely used to be more functional. It actually, it's not just perception. It actually is worse than it used to be. You talk to any seasoned businessman and they'll tell you it, it, it's different. The pressures are different. It's, not, it's much harder to run a public company, for example, today than it used to be. And the reason is this overwhelming push to be more selfish. There are many things that have happened. Not it was nobody's fault. There were sort of, sort of, sort of byproducts of decisions made long ago. But we are currently experiencing the side effects of some, some very ill-conceived decisions that were made in the '80s and '90s. You know, understand that leadership is like exercise. You can't measure it on a daily basis. You know, I could tell you to go to the gym, and you'll go. And you'll come back home and you'll look in the mirror and you will see nothing. <laughs> and you'll go the next day, because I made a compelling argument, and you'll come back and you'll look in the mirror and you will see nothing. Worse, you're in pain, right? <laughs> so empirically speaking, you're seeing no benefit or result from the effort you're putting in and you're hurting. And so it's a very good reason to stop. Um, and so we cannot measure leadership on a daily basis. However, if you were to look at a photograph of yourself from three months prior, you can't believe your body ever looked like that. In other words, it builds up, it's cumulative. And parenting is exactly the same. You know, you can't measure whether someone's a good parent or bad parent on a daily basis. If we were measured on a daily basis, we would all have our children taken away from us, right? <laughs> you measure parenting over the course of time. And, and, and it's, it's the cumulative effect of the good parent, even if they have bad days, that makes for great kids. It is the cumulative effect of great leadership that makes for great organizations. And likewise, bad leadership can also not be measured on a daily basis. In other words, we can't actually tell if somebody's a good leader or a bad leader until some time later when the organization is broken or there's massive mistrust inside the organization. 
any organization in which there's a, a, a general culture of people sending CYA emails is proof that they're afraid of each other, right? Any organization where people keep folders about all the things they've done, so if anything happens, they can bring it out to HR and show, okay, this is proof that they don't trust each other. They're expending time and energy to protect themselves from each other, which inherently means they're taking time and energy away from protecting them, the organization from the dangers of outside or seizing the opportunities outside. In other words, we go to work afraid. This is what work-life balance is, by the way. It has nothing to do with how much yoga you do. Right? What work-life balance means is I feel safe at home, but I don't feel safe at work. And the reason we don't feel safe at work is because we work in organizations, by and large, that our leaders would not sacrifice the numbers to save us. They would rather sacrifice us to save the numbers. This is the world we live in. It is pervasive. It is cancerous. And my argument, it is the reason for most of the things we're suffering today, our economic decline, um, our, our political struggles, our feeling. I mean, think about it. We don't even trust that our government's looking out for us. We, we have trust issues. <laughs> oh, all of my ex-girlfriends would hear me talking now. <laughs> I could just blame society. We have trust issues. And so what we are doing, and this is, this is the hard part, this is, this is the responsibility part. What we're doing is standing on the sidelines and saying, it's the corporations, it's the CEOs. We always put a the before things we don't like. You know, Corporations are fine, but the corporations, right? It's the politicians, right? We're standing on the sidelines and we're blaming all of the people and the failed leadership. And yet, I believe we bear some of the responsibility. The thing that I find remarkable about how societies move, and I'm particularly fascinated by social movements, is they happen not by appealing to the majority. There's something called the law of diffusion of innovations, where you actually only need 15 to 18% of a market, of a population, for the <laughs> phenomenon of the tipping point to take place and for ideas to take hold. And we don't need to preach to the majority. We need to find the people who believe what we believe and we need to take the very, very hard decisions to run our organizations the way a leader should run an organization. And if we're in the middle of an organization, that we demand that we feel safe. That doesn't mean that you have to do everything for us. That doesn't mean you have to coddle us. It makes us, but we want to feel that we can take risks and not feel that we're going to lose our jobs, which, by the way, is the root of innovation. Innovation, innovation requires experimentation, which requires failure. I love talking to CEOs, and I ask them, What's, what are their priorities? And they tell me, innovation and, and efficiency. The, impossible. <laughs> Pick one. Innovation is inherently inefficient. Pick one. You can have them alternate, you know, alternatively, but you can't have both, right? Because it's about experimentation and failure, experimentation and failure. There was a, an article in The Economist. You know, they do those special sections. They're as long as the magazine. And it was about the decline of innovation in the world. And it made this remarkable, compelling argument about the decline of innovation and it counted all kinds of factors. Um, fewer patents filed and the ones that are filed are not that special. Um, you know, truly earth-changing or industry-changing ideas. And they, they made a very, very compelling argument. And then they attempted to explain why. And they went through any number of factors, globalization, the internet, you know, uh, economic meltdown, all the rest of it, all of it. And there was not a single word devoted to the human being. Who's coming up with all the ideas? People. Human beings. Not a single word that said the reason that we have a decline of innovation today is because people are not coming up with ideas. Well, why aren't they coming up with ideas? Because they're too busy protecting themselves from each other. I saw it play out in sort of a fascinating way. I was, um, I was flying somewhere and I was boarding an airline and there was a guy who attempted to board before his group number was called. I, which I believe is a, f a federal offense. <laughs> and, and the gate agent treated him as such. Berated him. Sir, wait over there. It is not your turn yet. It, it, you stand over there. I mean, it was sort of remarkable. And so I spoke up. I said, why, why do you have to talk to us that way? Why, why can't you talk to us like human beings? Why don't you treat us nicely? I said. And this is exactly what I was told. 
She looked at me and said, sir, if I don't follow the rules, I could get in trouble or lose my job. All she told me was that I do not feel safe in my own job. All she told me was, is that I don't trust my leaders because my leaders don't trust me. That's all she revealed to me. The reason we like flying Southwest Airlines is not because they have some miracle formula to hire nice people. It's because their people don't fear their leaders. Their people feel safe amongst each other. And guess who are the lucky recipients? Us. Because they're not spending time and energy protecting themselves from each other. They give that energy to us. We have so much bad stuff going on because they're too worried about each other. And so it is our responsibility to demand, demand that our leaders give us what we want, which is we want to come to work and feel safe, just like we want to wo- roam the streets and feel safe. It's all we want, right? We have to demand it. Market rules, right? Um, if we are the leaders, we must take the risks. We must give this a try. We have to lead as leaders are expected to lead, to look after our people, to let them eat first, like any good parent would let their children eat first, to sacrifice what is ours when it counts, when it matters, when danger threatens, to see that our people are kept safe. I get asked the question a lot. What happens if you're in the middle of the organization, you want to do this, but you have no access to the senior levels and they don't get it? And the answer is you ignore the senior levels. You have no control over the senior levels. You can't tell them what to do. However, every single one of us has the capacity to show up to work every day and consider the person to the left of us and consider the person to the right of us. No matter where we sit in the organization, we can choose to be the leader we wish we had and make sure that the people with whom we work, the people whose faces we know and names we know, that they are taken care of, that someone is looking out for them, that we are working to see that they love coming to work every day, that they feel safe. And sometimes that may mean that we will get in trouble for standing up for them. We may even lose our jobs. This is fraught with risk, but it's necessary. It's highly necessary. We have to be the leaders we wish we had. Otherwise, nothing changes. It gets worse. It gets worse because we have amazing momentum here. The, the cue, the clue that I look to, strangely enough, is Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous offers us a roadmap how to fix our leadership problem. We've all heard of the 12-step program. Step number one, admit you have a problem. Okay, we've got to start there. There's <laughs> something rotten in Denmark here, right? But it's the 12th step. Alcoholics Anonymous has successfully been helping alcoholics beat this disease for 75, 80 years. And they know that if you master all 11 steps, but not the 12th, you will start drinking again probably. But if you master the 12th step, you will beat the disease. So what's the 12th step? The 12th step is the commitment to help another alcoholic. Service. Always service. There's no such thing as alcoholicsanonymous.org. <laughs> it doesn't happen online. It's a human experience. It happens in church basements and rec centers. It never happens over email and it never happens over text. It happens in person and it happens over the phone. It is the sacrifice of our time and energy to help someone who is suffering with what we are suffering for, with. We have an entire section in our bookshop called self-help. We have no section in our bookshop called help others, right? We're all so preoccupied with how can I find happiness? How can I find the job I love? How can I lose 10 pounds that we've literally forgotten to notice that the person standing right next to us is suffering? And if we choose to help the people who are suffering with the things that we hope to overcome, guess what happens? We get healed. This is, this is what Alcoholics Anonymous has proved to us. And when they talk about God in in their other steps, it's not necessarily God, it's faith, it's belief. Belief in something, a vision. This is what our leaders need to be setting for us. Something to believe in. Something worth fighting for. Something that we would bear any burden and pay any price. And right now, no one's offering us any of that. Absent a clear sense of vision, a clear cause, a clear purpose, a clear belief. Absent an environment in which we naturally feel safe amongst the people with whom we live or amongst the people with whom we work. The natural human response is cynicism, mistrust, paranoia, and self-interest. 
We are also such cowards, we all refuse to bleed because we still have to worry about ourselves. And this is why I look to these remarkable men and women in uniform. Just three days ago, there was a soldier who was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for bravery and heroism. If you haven't heard the story yet, his unit, it was a small unit, was, came under severe attack, heavy attack, rocket propelled grenades, you name it. It was thrown upon them. And it was so sudden and so shocking that every single soldier in the unit was injured simultaneously, hurt. And this one soldier with severe wounds, shrapnel uh, in his arm with severe bleeding coming out of one of his arms, shrapnel in his legs with severe bleeding coming out of his legs, chose to take post, man a machine gun, repel the enemy, pull pins on his grenades and wait and count so that when he threw his grenades, they couldn't throw them back, called in an airstrike and single-handedly repelled the attack. He thought he was convinced he was going to die. And he made the choice in his final moments, instead of lying there and waiting to die, that he would take up arms alone to protect the people he loves. Loves. And if you ask any of these heroes, any of them, why did you do it? They all say the same thing. Because they would have done it for me. Officers never go hungry. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, uh, good evening. We're going to open it up to the audience for questions. Um, we welcome your questions, and uh, we ask that you raise your hand, and either myself or my colleague will come to you, and uh, you can ask your question. So it looks like we have one right here we'll start off with. In your, in your opinion, uh, what would you say is the single most important attribute of leadership? Courage. Courage. Uh, Charisma, sometimes they have it, sometimes they don't. Vision, though ideal, sometimes they have it, sometimes they don't. It's courage. Uh, leadership is really hard. It's really hard work. It's a massive commitment. It's, it's, my, it's, it's, it's like having kids, right? I, I love people say, I want to have kids. That's the fun bit, right? <laughs> the question is, do you want to raise children for 18 plus years? That's a very different conversation. And so people want to be leaders, but, but do you really want to commit to a lifestyle of leadership? Like parenting, it's a, it's a lifestyle, and it is a very difficult choice that comes with m massive sacrifice and massive risk, and it's really not for the faint of heart. Um, but like anything, like parenting, like any skill, you don't have to start off big. It's a practice. You start off little, and you do little things, and you get better at them and better at them, and you take on bigger challenges and bigger challenges. Um, like I said, it's a practice and driving to work in the morning and you're, you know, somebody's trying to get into your lane. Do you back up or do you pull forwards? That's the practice of leadership because you're considering the well-being of others, right? You're standing in an elevator, you're running late for a meeting and someone's rushing for the elevators, the elevator's closing. What do you do? Do you go, ah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or do you grab the button? Without the excuse that I'm running late, you know? Um, uh, when someone in your organization is not performing well, you know, we really need to see you pick up your performance. You've, things haven't been going well. We've had this conversation before, and if you don't pick up your performance, I, I, I can't guarantee you a job. Or do we say, are you okay? Your performance is lagging. I'm worried about you. Are you okay? So this is all the practice of leadership. And when we do little things like this on a daily basis, it becomes easier and easier to take on the big things where we really have to consider the well-being of others. No one can, can be a leader overnight. It does not exist. It is a practice. It is a skill. And it requires many, many, many days of trying things out, like a parent. We have a question here on your left. Hi. Um, I was wondering, is there a difference between uh, indi individualistic cultures and collective cultures and how they deal with this idea of leadership or how the teams work and all that? Do you see this problem with leadership more um, kind of prominent in individualistic cultures, perhaps? Can you give me an example? Like, I mean, they're, they're, like you used the example of um, 
self-help books. There's all these books about how can I help myself or yeah. how can I make myself um, happy. So in, um, in Iran, for instance, where I'm from, there's a whole lot of culture and poetry and books and stuff like that about how people are all part of the same entity and mm -hmm. if one part is hurting, everybody else is hurting. So as a whole, we need to think about happiness of everybody mm -hmm. and so it's our duty and happiness mm -hmm. is in the happiness of our yep. neighbor and everybody else. Yep. Um, you know, the, the concepts that I talk about are matters of biology, not culture, though they may manifest differently. Um, in our modern day and age, there are certain uh, new stimuli that are short-circuiting our natural inclinations to look after each other. Um, power, money, um, these kinds of things. The fact that we are forced these days to operate at massive scale. Human beings aren't made to work at large scale. We're not good at it. Um, and it's usually one of the significant reasons why as organizations get bigger, things start to break. Right? We're, we're, we're literally not made for it. Um, so, uh, I, you know, you find that in certain cultures uh, like ours, it's, the problems may be more exaggerated. Um, you're starting to see um, sort of some of the breakdowns in Eastern Europe now, you know. You have these, some of the oligarchs and sort of, you know, and you start to see the drive for personal fortune and personal wealth and fame. The Internet is, doesn't help because the, the recognition you can get, the perception of being the alpha you know, um, becomes much more exaggerated now. You can be internet famous. I'm, I'm internet famous, you know? Um, and, it, and, and, and it tricks our systems. It literally short circuits our internal systems. Um, uh, like I said, this lack of leadership seems to be epidemic and pervasive. Um, you'd be hard-pressed to name a great leader anywhere in the world right now. Someone who seems to rise above their position, whether it's in politics or business. You know, regardless of your, your own politics. I mean, go back just a few years and Lech Valenza, Václav Havel, Leo Iacocca, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, they seem to have these intense beliefs, these idealisms and exist on levels above themselves. They rallied people, they, people who followed them who didn't have, share their politics. You know, they crossed the aisles. Um, um, where are they? R give me one, one name, two names, you know, we usually def defer to like, you know, well, you have Steve Jobs and you have Bill Gates, you know, you have Warren Buffett. They're dying, dead or old, you know. Um, give me some young leaders who seem to, to want to take that risk um, to be the leader we need. There's, there's, I got none. I have one, Lady Gaga. I'm being totally serious, by the way. She stands for a positive message. She's about unifying. She's very inclusive. She gives people a sense of belonging. Her message is always consistent. She puts herself out there and takes the risk and gives people a sense that if you're different, you have a sense, a place where you can feel safe. I actually think she's a great example of what leadership should look like. And she has a huge following. We have a question over here on your right. Simon, I was just curious, what did you tell Congress about the agenda? <laughs> so I have a good relationship with some of the people in there. And like I said, there are some good people uh, in the halls of Congress. Um, and uh, they are realizing more and more that there is the need to articulate a clear sense of vision that is not based on an agenda or a set of issues, but based on something bigger than Republican or Democrat. It's about being American. And there are certain themes about being American um, that are very unifying. You know, don't forget, this country has a huge advantage over other countries, huge advantage over other countries, which is our vision, our reason why we exist was written down for us. All men are created equal. That's why we went to war. We believed that this was a necessary thing. And the Declaration of Independence is such an amazing document. And if you, we, we don't know the rest of the document, right? We know the beginning, the why statement. But amazingly, if you go read the rest of it, it talks about how the actions of the king, uh, King George, were in conflict with this idea of we are all equal and endowed with these certain unalienable, unalienable rights of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And they literally make the argument. He didn't do this. He didn't do this. He didn't do this. He didn't do this. They could have done it the opposite way, which is look at all the stuff he did. We are all equal. All men are created equal. But they didn't. They started with the reason why. And so when we are at our best, we are in pursuit of that ideal. And the difference between a Republican and Democrat is simply an interpretation of how you get to that place. It's, it's a matter of the route, not the destination. We agree on the destination. The problem is because there is a lack of leadership and a lack of vision, 
because the destination has gone fuzzy and we're not working to uphold that ideal, we've confused the route with the destination. In other words, it's like saying, um, it's like saying, where are you going? Vacation. How are you going to get there? Route 95. Okay, 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 but where are you going? Vacation. No, no, I, I get that, but how are you, like, where are you going to, Route 95, it becomes a circular logic. Nobody's saying, we're trying to get to California. And the route becomes flexible. There's a car accident, or if you want to take the scenic route, or you can go a little, you, but we know where we're going. And because we don't know what California is, we just know we have to go, we become so sort of fixed and ardent in sort of the route. We've, the route is confused with the belief. And like I said, we have the greatest, the greatest advantage Look at Egypt, right? People rose up against Mubarak, and now what? Nobody said they were f- what they were for. They just said what they were against. And so that doesn't last. We know what we're for, but we keep talking about what we're against. It's a short-term strategy. Simon, thank you for your talk. Your concept of leadership seems to focus on the safety or security of the followers, your examples are the military where the followers are worried about their physical safety or hyper-competitive corporations where they're cons- worried about the security of their jobs. What does leadership look like in organizations where people are feeling much more secure in their jobs, where their physical or job safety is not so much of a question? What does leadership consist of there? Oh, same thing. That just sounds like it's a well-run organization. Um, I'm not sure... How, how else to answer it? I mean, in an organization where people feel safe, I mean, are they given challenges then? You know, you know it's, it, it, it's, it's not a hippie commune. You know, it's not like kumbaya, we all love each other. That's only part of it. And the question is now, what are we doing? Like, what are we building? Like, what are we trying to advance? Uh, human beings not only need the sense uh, uh, that they, of safety of each, from each other, but the sense that we have something to contribute to something to build. And it is incredibly rewarding to invest extreme amounts of time and energy to see something built and see the fruits of our labor. You know, what, what was, uh, uh, what was it? it was one of Gandhi's seven social sins, you know, wealth without hard work. You know, we, we, we want to work hard, but we won't work hard until we feel safe. So, so it's meaningful work, purposeful work. And this doesn't have to be, and, and a lot of purposeful work is sort of very abstract. Human beings are no good with the abstract. You know, we need things like, I have a dream that one day little black children will hold hands with, got, got it, I can envision it. That's why they call them vision statements. You can see it in your mind's eye, right? Um, and so unfortunately, a lot of giving people a purpose is abstract, like supporting America, helping the poor, giving back. I don't even know what that looks like. I don't know if I'm doing it, you know? It's like, I support, I support environmental things, but I'm not a very good recycler. So am I helping or am I not helping, you know? Um, and so clear sense of vision, clear th- a, a clear articulation of exactly what we're striving for. So when we said all men are created equal, it showed up at different time, at different, in different ways throughout our history, you know? Uh, women's suffrage, civil rights, gay rights, you know, I mean, it shows up in all, you know, education, healthcare. I mean, it shows up in different ways all the time. Um, but someone has to explain what the world would look like if we get that. And we don't. So you got to have both. You got to have both. It's, yeah, it can't be all performance numbers, numbers, numbers. And it can't be all sort of, oh, love, you know, it's, it's got to be both. We've got a question over here on your right. Balance, I guess, is the answer. So I, so I follow your edict and preach the Marine Corps line almost weekly in my organization. And, and we have great mission, great success. Um, but we're constantly dealing with other entities outside of our organization mm. that we need to be partners in order for us to be successful. Mm-hmm. And I can't find one leader with the courage mm-hmm. to be able to stand up and do what Peter Drucker would say, the right thing, mm-hmm. not do things right. Mm-hmm. How do you get, and this is, this is pervasive, I believe, sure. in many places. How do you get people reoriented so mm-hmm. they do what you are saying? Mm-hmm. Because we can do it, but we need the other folks to do it, or we can't get ahead. Right. So I, I, what they say in Parliament, I, I defer my colleague to the answer I gave some time ago. The, the, uh, 
it goes back to this law of diffusion. And this is why, as leaders, we need to do, I think, more than simply make the right decision and, and keep our people safe. We need to preach and preach and preach and preach. And those who believe in what we believe and those who inspi are inspired by the vision we have of the world, they will nominate themselves to help and they will take the risks and they will come near. Uh, I, I, I see it sort of like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, which is all, jigsaw puzzles all work the same way. You have to have the picture first. You lean the box up against the wall and then you start, right? And at, you, you sort of you put the, the frame around first and then it, you, you always do it differently. And then you look for the pieces to connect. And you don't even need to fill them all in to see what the picture is. And this is what all of our responsibilities are. So my job is I'm the guy, my, my piece of the puzzle, I'm the guy pointing at the picture on the box. Look what we're doing. Look what we have to do. And so what starts to happen as, as the preachers, people who are all walking around with their own jigsaw puzzle pieces. I got a company, you said. I believe what you believe, you said. And so you're saying, I got a piece and I'll put it in. And this is the point. The more of us who preach, we find each other, right? And the more we put the word out, people will say, I got somebody I need you to meet because he believes what you believe. And, and we find each other, but we have to preach and preach and preach and preach. And if we can find each other and we can start taking the risks and building the organizations, we can build a critical mass. Don't forget the unraveling of these things that have taken place in the 80s and 90s. Um, that took the same methodology, which is it was a small group of people who tried out these new theories, you know, shareholder supremacy being one of them, you know, and a few of them, and then it tipped, and now everybody thinks it's normal. Well, hello, that was a theory that was presented in the late 1970s. Theory, theory, right? Uh, the whole idea of using la layoffs, mass layoffs, as the first line of defense to balance the books didn't exist, didn't exist prior to the 1980s. These were experiments and theories that have taken hold because they reached the tipping point. We have to push it back. It'll take a generation. Thanks for your talk. I'm wondering what do you think the role of business schools is? Because it seems to me they're both part of the problem and the solution. <laughs> <laughs> and the second thing I would ask is where you think the role of empathy is in okay. all of this. Okay, business school. Oh, boy. A good too many business schools teach management, not leadership. They call it leadership, but let's be honest, it's management. No one wants to go to work in the morning and be managed. We want to be led, right? And the reason they teach management is because they have largely, just like I say that Congress reflects us, the business schools have started to reflect the markets they're supposed to be serving. And so um, Ted Koppel talks about this. He talks about this, the, the, the decline of, of the news uh, industry. And he says, there used to be a time where we gave people the news they needed, even if they didn't want it. Now we give people the news they want, even if they don't need it. And so what's happening in business schools is they're run like companies, which is they ask the market, what do you want? The market says, Neh. and they say, ah. okay, and they're feeding up. They're giving the kids the candy. What they should be doing is producing young leaders because that's what, they're, that's what we need, um, even though the corporations who are hiring these young and and it's it's sort of disturbing to me that one of the uh criteria one of the the selling points that too many b schools use to to entice people is what your starting salary will be when you graduate wow like what your starting salary will guess who you're attracting people motivated by their starting salaries which probably means they want the promotion for their next salary. I mean, the, it's become either way. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know. So they bear, I think, significant responsibility. And everybody says the same thing. It's it's sort of amazing to me. I asked somebody in Congress, so please explain to me why you have nine percent approval rating. I didn't think I was speaking out of turn. <laughs> <laughs> why do you have a nine percent approval rating? And they said, "This I get this. I get this. this the media." I love that one. That's my favorite one. But this is the one's even better. It's the system. You are the system. Like there is no mythical system, right? It's like it's like well, that's just that's the how it is. It's there's this blind acceptance that the wrong way is the only way. Um, there's that courage thing again. We don't have very well-led business schools. We've got a question back here. 
I love everything you're saying, but I'm wondering if it's just a little bit Western world oriented, and I wonder what you would say to the emerging and the very emerging and emerged leaders in somewhere like China, where the culture doesn't support independent leadership. Our democratic culture obviously encourages leadership, but it doesn't there, and so it breeds that kind of mistrust and so on. If you're a leader, how do you trust your team somewhere like that? How do you trust that they're not everyone for themselves? coming out of a culture that has suppressed everybody's independence. For a place that claims they don't have individual leaders, leadership, they have individual leaders. And they have folklore and they have uh, philosophies that they follow. And they sometimes put a human face on those. Maoism, right? And we believe in this and we believe in that person. Usually the inspiring leaders of present or past simply become the personification of the set of beliefs that we pursue. And because we are tangibly oriented animals, by putting a human face on them, we can more easily say, I'm following him, as opposed to this abstract set of values. You know, we talk about our founding fathers. We do it. We talk about the Constitution, which is simply a structural document. But what we're saying is that these people embody a set of beliefs that we hold dear, and it's much easier for us to point to a document or a person or a thing than the abstract. So even in those societies, um, the strong ones have a thing. You know, uh, the Chinese talk about their thousand-year plan. This is this concept of, you know, outlasting everyone, this, inf this infinite game, if you will, that they're playing, which is very good. It, that's a sign of, I think, good leadership. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it will manifest in different ways, but the rules of the biology and anthropology are, are completely consistent across cultures. Every single one of us wants to... F I mean, look what's happening in, in Gaza, right? So you have... You have uh, the Palestinians raising the questions themselves. They're really sort of pretty upset at Hamas as much as they are Israel. So because Hamas didn't make them feel safe, they're, they're being used as pawns. In other words, the group is questioning whether their leaders, their elected leaders, have their interests in mind or their own power brokering interests in mind. In other words, they're speaking up that way. It is not blind faith at all. We have a question to your left. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm still stuck on the very first things you said at the beginning. That I shouldn't have a career? Well, <laughs> well let's frame it this way. <laughs> what is then the role of leadership development, coaches, executive coaches, tr leadership training? We, ha we know there's a plethora of books. A lot of them use Great military or sports sure. personalities. Put out. So what is the essential, sure. what is what you do? Um, we teach, so when we get a job, we teach people how to do the job. We give them tons of training how to do their job. And if they're really good at doing their job, we promote them to a position of looking after other people who are doing the job they used to do. But we don't teach them how to do that. And so we give this heavy training at the beginning about doing jobs, promote the people who are good at doing not necessarily. There's no correlation between leadership and, and how good you are. You know, Tommy Lasorda, okay ball player, great coach. Isaiah Thomas, great ball player, bad coach, right? In other words, there's no correlation. Um, and so uh, what is distinctly lacking in, I think, many, many businesses is this concept of leadership training. Leadership is something that has to be taught and trained. And at every promotion at every level, and I'm talking more than the off-site in Ojai with half a day of golf. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, like, yeah, I took the seminar. Like, that's not training, right? I'm talking about robust curriculum at every level so that throughout your entire career at a company, you're constantly being taught more and more as you get promoted because your responsibilities for human beings starts to change. Um, and by the way, the simple providing of that curriculum makes someone feel that their company has their interests in mind because they're investing the money to give me a training that they won't see the return for a bunch of years. And that mere act produces loyalty and, and the desire to do the right thing and look after each other. So I am completely in agreement with you. Like We need lots of training, leadership training. We've got a question in the back here. 
whether or not uh, it's the way it should be, I think there's a, is a perception that the point of a of a often the point of a business leader in a private corporation is to make a profit for the company, and whether or not there it is reflective of reality, we at least hope that our elected officials are applying leadership for the good of the country. Uh, do you think that there is an essential, any real essential difference between leadership in the context of a private for-profit corporation and in a public context, or is that something that are somewhere where our thinking has just gone off track no it's it's a it's there it's irrelevant there's all the same thing you know we're basing the the building of our organizations based on a flawed definition by milton friedman that he said the only purpose of the company corporation is is to make money uh one guy said that and a bunch of people who would benefit from that definition went <laughs> right so uh yeah, it's a flawed definition, if you ask me. Not to mention the fact, the very obvious uh, observation is that money is a result. It's not a reason to do something. You can't show up to make money because there's no. it's a result. It comes at the end of something, not at the beginning. You know, purpose is something that gives you the reason to show up. It's something that you come for. Um, and so you can't build an organization. You can't create purpose around a result. It, 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 a result is a metric to demonstrate that you're making uh, progress towards some and uh, destination. You know, that's why they put mile markers on the race, so you can feel like you're making progress towards the finish line. But if there's no finish line, you can't show up for the mile marker, and then the next mile marker, and the next mile marker. And this is why people work their entire lives and feel like their, their lives had no purpose or they're unfulfilled, because they kept making each mile marker, but they never knew what the destination was. We have to give people the reason to come to the race in the first place. We have to give them the destination. And then the metrics, the money, are simply a demonstration that we're actually making progress towards, towards that. I'll give you one funny story that demonstrated this. I learned this with a big slap in the face. Um, I had a meeting at the Pentagon, and uh, I was waiting to see the general. And you know how when you, have, when, you, when you go to a meeting, there's something called hallway talk, hallway banter, you know, where somebody comes to get you, and you're walking to the office, and they're, ah, how was your trip? You know, so like, it's just to pass the time to get to the office. And that's what happened to me. Uh, the general came to get me from the foyer. We're walking to his office. We're making hallway banter we'd never met before. And he starts the hallway banter. He says, you know, Simon, I've had everyone in my office read your book. To which I responded, my publisher thanks you. <laughs> to which he responded, tell them not to bother. I had them read my copy. <laughs> okay? Total book sales? One. Total impact, huge. Versus when I go to an event and they give away 500 free books, total book sales, 500, but they use them as coasters. Total impact, zero. And so this is, this is the point, which is, which is the impact is the reason why we come to work. It's that destination. We want to be able to have done something. But the metric is the thing that helps us gauge. Over the course of time, yes, book sales will tell me that there's a demand for the ideas, but not in any distinct uh, uh, packet. Um, at the risk of going on too long with this one answer, I heard an EMT speak recently. And he's been an EMT for 15 years. EMTs are trained that when they have a patient who's going to die, who's not going to make it, who will succumb to their wounds, they are trained to lie. They are trained to tell them, no, no, you're going to be okay. The theory being that in their final moments, give them some sense of hope and try not to give them any sense of panic or fear. That's the theory. And this is what they do. And about five years ago, this EMT responded to a really bad motorcycle, motorcycle accident and the guy wasn't going to make it. And the guy looked at him and said, am I going to die? And for some reason, the EMT decided to tell him the truth. He said, yes, you're going to die. And the guy put his head back and the EMT said that there was this immense sense of peace and calm and acceptance that overcame him. And he says, since then, he's always been telling the truth. And he says, almost every time, there's this overwhelming sense of peace and calm and acceptance. He said, he's noticed three patterns emerge whenever he tells the truth. One, people want forgiveness. They want to be forgiven for the things that they've done wrong. Two, they want to be remembered even sometimes just from the EMT. Three, 
They want to feel that their life was worth it. I should have spent more time with my kids and not so much time at work. They want to feel that whatever they did had a bearing on the lives of others, right? And so if empirically we know that in the final moments of life, when we come face to face with our own mortality, that every single one of us will ask for forgiveness, want to be remembered, and want to know and feel that our life was worth it and we had an impact on the lives of others. What a remarkable, remarkable thing to live our lives like that right now, right? Where we offer forgiveness, where we tell the people who are valuable to us, I will remember you forever. And to try to commit ourselves to leaving something behind for others, to having an impact on the lives of others, just as Alcoholics Anonymous told us. Fulfillment and happiness and joy comes from service. It's the human body trying to get us to look after each other, you know? Simon, thank you very, very much. Thanks, Andy. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.